Our passage this morning is Matthew 18, 15 through 35. Matthew 18, 15 through 35. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that he had what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me? And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brothers from your heart. One verse. One verse. I got to the end of my week and I had written a whole bunch of sermon 
And I realized I had a whole sermon and I never got past verse 15. So what was going to be one week is going to be two weeks, which is great. So Jacob will just do the same songs next week. So we're going to start studying. I'm just kidding. We'll do different songs. We're going to start studying the passage that Kevin just read for us this week. But it's going to take us two weeks because there is so much in here. And this is so rich and so important church for us to understand. Because as we just sang before the sermon, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And church, we need to grieve and we need to fear wandering. You might remember if you were with us last week that last week the section concluded with a parable about a wandering sheep. Chapter 18, verse 12 says, What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And friends, as I noted briefly to you last week, the answer to the question is no. The answer to the question is no. A smart businessman does not risk the ninety-nine To go off and seek the one because a 1% loss is an acceptable loss. But church, the gospel, the good news is that God is a lousy businessman, but a good shepherd. He's a lousy businessman, but a good shepherd because he seeks the one. He seeks the wandering. And in chapter 18, verse 14, he concludes the parable So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Friends, God's heart is for the wandering one, that none should be lost. And church, that is our call too. Our call should be for the wandering ones, no sheep left behind. Again, the foundation and the flow of this argument began in what we were studying last week. Remember last week, verses 1 through 4, we heard a discussion of who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus concluded in verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in verses 5 and 6 last week, we discovered that we don't take our unity And our obligation to one another anywhere near as seriously as Jesus does. We heard in verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. And then last week we saw in verses 7 through 9, we were forced to confess that, frankly, we do not take sin anywhere near as seriously As Jesus takes sin, as we heard Jesus say, gouge out your eye, cut off your hand, treat sin as drastically as you can, because sin is a cancer that not only affects you, but it infects those around you. And so he warned, we heard him in verse seven, woe to the world for temptations to sin, because it's necessary temptations come, but woe to the one by whom The temptation comes. And we concluded that little ones are a big deal in the kingdom of heaven. They're a big deal to the king. So woe to the one who does not take sin seriously. Because friends, sin in our lives threatens our unity. 
sin in our lives scandalizes and might cause others to stumble. And woe to those who cause one of these little ones who believe in Christ to stumble. So church, God has given us the responsibility to guard one another and ultimately to guard one another from judgment, from a millstone around the neck. Because woe to those who stray in their sin and might lead others to also stray. We do not take sin and its effects as seriously as Jesus clearly does in this chapter. And we do not take care for one another anywhere near as seriously as Jesus calls us to in this chapter. Because, friends, we find that strange sin doesn't just affect you. Your sin does not just affect you. It affects those around you in ways that are seen and ways that are unseen. In ways that are overt and ways that are subtle. Your sin has consequences not just for you. Your sin affects your family. And your sin affects this church family. Straying into sin has consequences. And three times in that parable of the sheep, we hear Jesus use the Greek word that's translated astray. Elsewhere, that same word is translated as deceive. Or deceived. Because, friends, sin deceives us and then causes us to stray. Sin is deceptive. To be deceived is to be taken away from the truth. To deconstruct is to depart from this faith constructed in Christ. To deconvert is to move away from obedience to Christ's commands. To de-church is to walk away from the safety of God's people. The sheep goes astray. And the double danger is that others might follow. Your sin affects not only you, it affects your family and it affects your church family. And so we need to take it seriously. And we need to take Jesus' words to us, church, seriously. Because straying sheep need to be gained again. Straying sheep need to be gained back The deceived need to be received. The deconstructed, reconstructed. The deconverted, reconverted. The de-churched, re-churched. And today's passage is all about that. It's about gaining again your brother. It's about winning back your sister. It's about calling home the one who is straying and wandering under the deception of sin. Because church family, of all of the promises that we make to one another when we become members of this body, arguably there is none more important, there is none more difficult, there's none more maligned, there's none more misunderstood, and there's none more neglected than the call that we hear right here to call the wandering home. The New Testament is full of one another commands. One another commands that are meant to describe the relationship that we're supposed to have. And no surprise, at the head of the list, love one another. That doesn't surprise anyone. But what might surprise you is that the number two most repeated one another command in the New Testament is admonish or rebuke one another. To admonish means to warn or to firmly reprimand to rebuke and church the fact that this is the second most often repeated command in the New Testament to us 
tells us we're probably going to need it. It tells us that we are all prone to wander. And thus, at times, every one of us is in need of rebuke, correction, admonishment. Church, sin deceives us. And what does it do? It deceives us and it seeks to move us away from the truth, away from obedience, away from the community. Because once it does, sin has us all to itself. And we need to begin by confessing that, sin, that none is more easily deceived by sin than you are. Sin first deceives you. Because those of you that are in Christ, those of us that are in Christ, friends, we don't want to do evil. You're not out there looking for ways to do things that are sinful. However, when we wander, what happens? We are deceived. And so we do something and and we, we feel ourselves completely justified because we've made up a justification for that thing that we're doing. Or when we stray, we're convinced of the truth that we're believing. Or we believe that of the righteousness of our own actions. Friends, sin deceives you first. King David warns us in Psalm 36, verse 2, the wicked flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Friends, the Hebrew word for flatters literally means to smooth out. And isn't that exactly what we do? We smooth out kind of those rough edges. You know, we flatter ourselves in our own eyes. You know, we minimize the wrong attitude that we have. We justify that angry response. We rationalize that sinful action. It's not that bad. I mean, everybody kind of does this. I mean, God's God's probably not going to sweat the small things. Like King David says, what do we do? We flatter ourselves. We smooth it all out. We're smooth talkers. And the less that we, we do that, the less we detect our sin. The more that we talk and we smooth it out, the less we detect and, as King David says, hate our sin. Sin deceives you first. It deceives you first. As Proverbs chapter 12 verse 15 says the way of a fool is right in his own eyes but a wise man listens to advice friends let's be honest i mean why do we do things because our ways always seem right in our own eyes that's why you did it nobody is set out to do the wrong thing but we smooth it out don't we we justify we rationalize we minimize And then if we refuse advice, if we refuse loving counsel, here the author of Proverbs calls us fools. Because friends, none is more easily and quickly deceived by sin than you are. Pastor and author Paul Tripp shares a warning. And he's speaking about a pastor friend of his who strayed into sin. And as you listen to these words, don't ask if this is you. I encourage you to listen and ask the Lord to show you how this is you. Tripp writes, My friend did his best to hold on to the the delusion that no one had a more accurate view of him than he did. 
He thought no critique of his thoughts or desires or motivations or choices or words or actions was more reliable than his own. He thought that the only questions in confrontation that he needed were what he brought to himself. He was all too confident in his vision and all too trusting of his critique of himself. When others would question or confront him without knowing what he was, he was doing, it, he'd activate his inner lawyer and generate arguments in his own defense. He often told himself that the speaker didn't really know him because if he did, he wouldn't question him the way that he was. And he often angrily said to his wife, darling, you just don't know me as well as you think you do. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. That describes every one of us. And sin seeks to isolate and then to insulate us against every attempt at rescue. Again, the author of Proverbs gives us wisdom in Proverbs 18.1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desires. He breaks out against all sound, sound judgment. Friends, sin and desire isolate us from others and isolate us from sound judgment of our actions and our attitudes. But church, we do not have the most accurate understanding of ourselves because sin is deceptive and the first person your sin is going to deceive is you. So God in His grace in His grace, has given us one another. Church, this is the purpose of Jesus' teaching in this passage. It's the heart of what church discipline is. Now, church discipline, I just said it, that's a frightening word. And it's a maligned phrase. And church discipline has been misrepresented and mishandled. Church discipline has been abused and has been abusive, but when it's properly understood and lovingly practiced, church discipline is a part of the Christian life. How does Jesus say that it's supposed to be practiced? How does he say we gain again the one who's straying? How do we receive the deceived? And immediately following the parable of the wandering sheep, Jesus says in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You have gained your brother. Now, while Jesus starts here talking about when your brother or your sister has sinned against you, his words apply generally to when a brother or sister seems to be wandering into some sort of sin. And Jesus says, first of all, go. Go. Take the initiative. Jesus says, don't wait for him. If you think that he's sinned against you, don't sit there and stew and wait for him to apologize. He says, don't wait for the perfect time because, friends, there is no perfect time. If you truly suspect that a brother or a sister has a sinful cancer growing in his or her soul, don't wait. Jesus says, your relationships are too important for pettiness and sin is too serious for indifference. So go. And if I could be a little bit more specific, go in person. Let's just say that email is a horrible way to question or confront anyone. Friends, face-to-face is uncomfortable and it's inconvenient. But let me tell you how necessary it is. And church, we need to, every one of us, beware of keyboard courage. 
Beware of keyboard courage because behind the anonymity of a keyboard, you will write things that you would never say face to face to your brother or sister. When you're not looking your brother or sister in the eye, you will speak far more harshly because you will forget that you're speaking to a brother or sister. And if you need proof of that, all you got to do is log on to social media. Because again, look at the so-called discussions we have with one another on Facebook or Twitter or X or any social media. When we're disembodied from one another, friends, we become far harsher. We say things that we would never say. We increase the intensity and the vitriol. The greater the distance, the greater the distortion and the greater the animosity. So when Jesus says go, he doesn't mean send a text or a tweet or a snarky Facebook post. Go face to face. And notice in verse 15, Jesus says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. The issue always starts between just you and me. The issue should always at first remain just between you and me. Go directly to the person without making any other stops, without rallying support, without soliciting opinions, without making prayer requests. Church, beware. Because it's always easier to talk about a person than to talk to them. It's always easier to talk about a person than talk to them. And such gossip only ever reinforces your prideful biases and your assumptions. Gossip never heals. Gossip never resolves. Gossip is not a prayer request. Gossip is not expressing an honest concern. It's gossip. Jesus says, keep it small. After all, if you involve people prematurely, you might alert people unnecessarily to something that would have been resolved between the two of you. And then you've brought embarrassment upon your brother or sister. Jesus says, keep it small because, friends, the vast majority of our perceived slights, offenses, or conflicts are actually an issue of miscommunication or misunderstanding or making a snap judgment. And when we privately approach someone and clear it up, so often the misunderstanding is cleared up. So often a quick apology is made. So often the issue is resolved. And then you've protected your brother's dignity. You've shielded your sister from unnecessary embarrassment before others. The author of Proverbs says in Proverbs 17:9, whoever covers an offense seeks love. But he who repeats the matter separates close friends. Love seeks to resolve and to cover an offense without letting others know. And we should always keep it small because you don't want to embarrass or shame your brother or sister. You simply want to gain them back. You want to gain them back. In other words, church, as we heard last week at the beginning of chapter 18, how should we approach one another? Humility. Remember, Jesus said, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? It's the one who's become the least. It's humility. And friends, humility doesn't make declarations as often as humility asks questions. You know, I don't understand this that I saw. Can you explain that? I'm confused by it. Could you help me understand why it recognizes that the first thing we need to do is humbly approach the other 
and acknowledge we don't know the whole story. Ask questions, seek the truth, and then speak the truth about what you perceive with the hope in your heart that what you're seeing is wrong and that your brother or sister is actually not deceived or straying. Humility doesn't say when they do find a sin, well, I could never do that. Friends, humility says, there go I, but the grace of God. There go I, but the grace of God. Humility says, if I can see this, in fact, in you, it's probably only because I can see it in myself. Humility doesn't condemn someone in their sins, but neither will it minimize or rationalize away another person's sin. Church, hear that again. Humility does not condemn, but humility also does not minimize or rationalize the seriousness and deadliness of unrepentant sin. Properly practiced church discipline communicates that sin is great, but grace is greater. Church, sin is great, but grace is greater. And friends, that's the gospel. That's the good news. The good news is the goal of church discipline is to bring the one who is strayed back to drink again from the fountain of Christ's inexhaustible grace. As we sang this morning, there's hope for the hopeless and all those who've strayed. Come sit at the table and come taste the grace. Church, whether we come there willingly or whether we are dragged there in love by a brother or sister in Christ, we all need to drink repeatedly and regularly from the gospel-filled fountain of grace. And I promise you that fountain will never run dry. Because as we sang, our sins, they are many. But church's mercy is more. The fountain of grace is our only hope. To come again and again to Christ, confessing our sins that we might be cleansed of them and forgiven of them. Because, friends, if we do wander far from that fountain of grace, we will die. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20 counsels us, My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I mean, church, do you hear how serious that language is? Save his soul from death? Do you understand, church, do you understand that the one sin that cannot be forgiven is the sin from which you refuse to repent? The sin from which you cannot be forgiven is the sin from which you refuse to repent. It's the sin which you do not acknowledge is sin. It's the sin after which you wander away from Christ. Church, the gospel is that any sin, no matter how heinous, can and will be forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. But the sin that you do not say is sin, the sin to which you defiantly cling, the sin with which you make your identity, the sin under whose deception you choose to settle and remain, the sin into which you settle, that sin, unrepentant, cannot be forgiven. Church, we all have sin in our lives. None of us, myself especially, is perfect. 
on this side of eternity. So understand that the greatest problem in your life is not sin. The greatest problem in your life is lack of repentance. Because every sin repented of can and will be forgiven by Jesus Christ. Your greatest problem is not the presence of sin in your life, but the lack of repentance in your life. Sin identified and repented of will always be forgiven. But unrepentant sin, even when identified to which you choose to cling, in which you choose to wander, with which you choose to identify, is deadly. But as James writes, whoever brings a sinner back from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We don't take sin anywhere near as seriously as Jesus does. We don't take sin anywhere near as seriously as the Scripture does. Church, let us be bold. Let us warn one another of sin and its dangers. And let us be humble as we call those who appear to be deceived and wandering away in sin. And let us speak the gospel of grace because it's our only hope. And friends, it can save our souls and cover a multitude of sins. Church, will we speak? And when you're spoken to, church, will you listen? Take note of the outcome that Jesus pictures for us at the end of verse 15. It says, if he, your brother, listens to you, you've gained your brother. Friends, the goal is never to win the argument. The goal is to win back your brother. The goal is to gain back your sister. So friends, if you are on your way to your brother or sister just to win the battle, or just to prove yourself right, or maybe to force an apology for something you feel was done against you, you're not ready to go. You might win the battle, but you can lose the war. And the goal is to gain your brother back from sin. The goal is to win your sister back from her wandering that she might be saved. Church, the goal is to gain. The goal is repentance. In the New Testament, repent is the Greek word metanoia that literally means to change your mind. In other words, stop hiding, stop minimizing, stop justifying, stop rationalizing, stop smoothing over your sin, and instead agree with God's evaluation of your actions. Agree with God's evaluation of your attitudes. Agree with God's evaluation of you and repent. Turn towards Him and turn away from your sin. And friends, true repentance is more than emotion. True repentance is action. Too quickly, church, we settle. We settle for remorse over repentance. We settle for remorse over repentance. Remorse is to feel sorry. But church, understand that remorse is just often feeling sorry for yourself. I've seen remorse, and it's so often in my life and in the life of other people, feeling sorry you were caught. Or sorry that you're suffering consequences of your sin. But friends, are you grieved that you sinned? Are you sorry that you were caught? Are you sorry you're suffering consequences? Or are you sorry that you sinned in the first place? Remorse is usually about seeking comfort, but repentance is about inviting change. 
And the Apostle Paul writes and makes this clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Friends, remorse too often is simply about bad feelings and why you get past the bad feelings so that you can just continue life like you've always been doing it. But repentance is doing whatever it takes to deal with the underlying sin that caused the pain in the first place. Church, we are too shallow in our obedience and we are too shallow in our repentance. We content ourselves with picking off fruit rather than digging up the root. Cheap grace is to say you can be forgiven for sins for which you're not really sorry. Cheap grace is seeking forgiveness for a sin with no real desire to be delivered from that sin. Cheap grace picks at the fruit rather than digging up the root. But costly grace of the gospel is the call to repentance. To confess and agree with God's assessment of your actions. And by God's grace and power to turn from them and to turn to God. To let that sin be uprooted from your life and destroyed. Church, the goal is to gain back the wandering brother. It's to win back your deceived sister. That he or she might repent and be received by the healing, forgiving grace of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is clear. He's clear that you and I, we all, need this kind of help in our lives. And the Bible is clear that God has given us the gift of one another, church, for this reason. And if we remain silent, then we actually sin against one another. We are charged to seek those who stray, to receive the deceived, to help the deconstructing reconstruct, to invite the de-churched to re-church. We are responsible to pray and to labor and to warn and to win back our brother and to gain back our sister. And what I hope is abundantly clear from this discussion, like I said, we've made it one whole verse. What is clear from even just discussion of this one verse and of this idea is that this idea of church discipline is not punitive but it is instructional and correctional. And the majority of it actually happens informally. Person to person, member to member. Discipline shares the same root word as discipleship. Because we are discipling one another into greater obedience to Christ. We are always teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training one another towards obedience and righteousness in Christ. And that's what we're supposed to be. And it's only if your efforts to gain back your brother or win back your sister are unsuccessful that it needs to become more formal. Only when a member refuses repentance and persists in wandering, then is the circle widened and others invited in. And next week, as we continue our study of this passage, we'll talk about what that looks like. But for this week, church, for this week, understand your responsibility to one another. How serious it is. How serious sin is. And how destructive and deadly it is not only to you, but to those around you. 
And I love the imagery that Christ gives us here of gaining back or winning back our brothers or sisters. Because, friends, it reminds us of what's at stake here. Understand, church family, every one of you, for every one of you, there is a war right now being fought for your soul. There is a war being fought for your soul. Will the power of sin win in your life and drag you away? Or will you trust your brothers and sisters in Christ to win you over and drag you back to Christ when you need it? Do you trust your brothers and sisters in Christ to bear your burdens with you? Do you have a band of brothers who has got your back and who will carry you kicking and screaming to the cross of Calvary if you need it? You know, the 12-step programs like Alcoholics Anonymous understand this well. One participant said, when I show up at an AA meeting, it proves that my desperate need for them, these people, won out over my desperate need for alcohol. And friends, do we feel the same way? That our desperate need for our brothers and our sisters, will it win out over our desperate need for our sin? Because a war is being waged for you each and every day. Will you be won over by your sin? Or will you allow yourself to be won over, gained by your brothers and sisters in Christ who will walk with you to the fountain of grace? To Jesus Christ our Lord. Church, will you commit yourself to humbly speaking the uncomfortable truth to one another, to asking risky questions, to initiating difficult conversations? Because whoever brings back a sinner from her wandering will save her soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So will you commit to win back your sister? Will you commit to gain back your brother? And will you yourself Allow yourself to be called home and return to Christ. Let's pray. Father, prone to wander, Lord, may we feel it. May we confess it. Break down our pride that says, I have no need for what has been talked about today. I have no need. I've got this. Because, Father, that's our pride lying to us. We, none of us have got this. I don't have this. What I need is you. What I need is my brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, forgive us. Forgive me for my pride. Of thinking that I've got this. No, Lord, we desperately need one another. Because otherwise sin is going to take us down. They'll take us down one by one, isolating us, dragging us away. And we'll find ourselves deceived and wandering far away, far away from you. Oh, may that not be, Father. Give us grace. Give us humility. Give us boldness. Give us truth. And Father, give us one another. May we gain back. May we win back our brothers and our sisters. To you. In Jesus' name we ask this all. Amen. Thank you, Adam. Please, in closing statement.